Thank you for coming. I will pray and uh, then we'll get started. I hope you have an outline and I put the Bibles out next to the outline because there will be no verses. There's no PowerPoint. Uh, so you might just need nimble fingers and an open Bible. Uh, let's pray. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you that our Lord Jesus gave us baptism and the Lord's Supper to strengthen, encourage and nurture our trust in him. Our Father, we're sad when these things cause confusion amongst us and so we do pray as we look at your word, uh, you would guide our understanding, help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly, uh, help us to have the questions we have answered uh, from your word and we do pray that you give us a common mind and conviction about the role of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, more than that, our gracious Father, we pray that we would be able to receive these as good gifts from you. We would be able to rejoice in your kindness uh, in giving us these tokens of your love and uh, we would be able to use them. Uh, for the building up of our faith and the faith of others. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, as I uh, said in that uh, first uh, paper I uh, published um, uh, on, on this after uh, people indicated that they were uh, disturbed by the introduction that says that the Lord's Supper is uh, for baptised uh, believers, uh, I was both surprised uh, that people were not baptised, believers were not baptised, and uh, so I was surprised and I'm sorry that that introduction has disturbed you because it probably means that we have not taught systematically about baptism and the Lord's Supper uh, for some time. Though it has happened in the life of the church, but uh, the life of the congregation now goes on for several years, so... Something that happened 10 years ago may not have been something you participated in or heard. Um, so we probably haven't uh, done that for some time, speaking about their role and the relationship of the two in the Christian life. And our surprise, and now I'm talking about Theo and myself, uh, also means that we're probably not particularly aware of some who believe and teach uh, that the baptism spoken of in the New Testament, particularly in Matthew 28, is a purely metaphorical way of speaking. And uh, where that understanding has taken root and where, as we'll see, baptism has been separated uh, from conversion, uh, it can lead uh, to uh, quite a degree of confusion. So we hope to clarify that tonight. Tonight's talk is uh, mainly about baptism, uh, though we will uh, also talk about the Lord's Supper and the relationship of the two, but it seems the issues are mainly around uh, baptism. And we will be pausing for questions throughout the night uh, because what we want is clarity. So at the end of the section on what the Gospel says about baptism and then again at the end of the summary on baptism and then again at the end of the section of the Lord's Supper, I'll pause for questions. So you might like uh, to note them down and, and then ask the question. Uh, ask it clearly because it is about 
uh, getting uh, clarity. And there will be questions because I realise uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper are surrounded by many, many issues. Uh, and the issues that I perhaps am addressing tonight, I know leave untouched many others, say particularly the relationship of what we believe to what Roman Catholics teach about baptism and the Lord's Supper. I'm not, in a sense, going down that direction at all, but they might be areas you have uh, questions on, so feel free uh, to ask them. And, and also, if at the end uh, you want to know more about baptism or whether you want to be baptised or something, so, uh, then come and see me or Clinton or, or Chris. I'm actually not sure who else is here, actually, any of the pastors. Uh, that would be good. So uh, a, a discussion, understanding of baptism uh, in the New Testament uh, starts with the baptism of John, and he's called the baptizer because uh, in many ways he uh, probably was the innovator of uh, uh, baptism for the people of God. That is, he was calling uh, Jews uh, to be uh, baptised. Now, John's baptism happened in the context of a message of repentance. So if we go to Matthew 3... Uh, you see that uh, in those days John the Baptist came uh, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And uh, people came out, at verse 6, and they were baptised by him in the river Jordan, uh, confessing uh, their sins. So, so John's baptism is uh, a message of uh, repentance, uh, first of all, uh, which probably uh, pulls together, uh, you know, some of the the background in uh, uh, the metaf uh, ritual washings in the Old Testament, and then um, that the way that's developed in terms of holiness, say in Psalm twenty four and Psalm fifty one. Anyhow, there there is a background, so it's a message of repentance, and it is a baptism of uh, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So he says, I baptise you with water for repentance. And so they're baptised, confessing their sins, or Luke tells us, uh, for forgiveness of sins. And in many ways, uh, John's uh, baptism is in itself anticipatory. So John's ministry is an anticipatory fulfilment. That is, he is the Elijah who is to come. And so his very coming is the fulfilment of what was expected at the end. But his is a fulfilment that anticipates that greater fulfilment that will happen in the ministry of the one who John said is so exceedingly greater than he. The thongs of whose sandals he's not uh, worthy to untie. And in many ways... His baptism is also anticipatory in terms of Malachi uh, 4. His baptism is preparatory. It's preparatory for the ministry of the one who is to come. But to be ready for that one, people have to turn away from their sin and seek forgiveness if they're going to endure the coming of the one who is to come. Uh, now, as part of uh, John's uh, ministry... He also spoke of baptism in the Spirit. Uh, so he says, 
Uh, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So what you have established in John is both the baptism of repentance, and that's the basis in a sense in which you will be included in the new people of God, the people of God who are defined by repentance and faith in the word of God, but you also have this expectation of the greater baptism, the substantial baptism. Now this is plainly a metaphorical use of the term baptism by analogy with his own ministry, but the one who is to come will bring the gift of the Spirit, uh, spoken of in Isaiah and Ezekiel, and his ministry will be refining. Uh, the ministry that's spoken of in Malachi 3, who can endure the day of his coming, for he is like the refiner's fire and the fuller's soap. So it will actually be a refining and purifying of Israel as well. So we get that sense of anticipation. Now we're going through these passages, Just we're just pottering uh, uh, through them. Now the next uh, aspect of uh, John's ministry is that he actually baptises Jesus. Uh, so Matthew 3, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptised by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and do you come to me? Uh, and it's interesting because John is having a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Why does Jesus need to be baptised? He doesn't have anything to repent of. Uh, but he says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfil all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptised immediately, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened on him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now it is interesting that Jesus submitted himself uh, to uh, baptism and at one level uh, it represents his identification with his people but it also demonstrates that he is the true Israelite because what does a true Israelite do? He listens to and responds to the prophet of God. So this is a sign that Jesus will live his life in submission uh, to the word of God and he is uh, commended uh, for that by the Father. In many ways, this is the beginning of his ministry and it, it indicates the submission to the word which will actually take Jesus to the cross again as the Israelite who listens to the Father and does his will. So Jesus himself is uh, baptised. Now there are a couple of references then uh, to bap baptising activity. And you'll notice uh, that uh, Jesus' disciples are baptising even while John is still baptising in John. Now it speaks of uh, Jesus himself not baptising, but plainly allowing and endorsing uh, the activity of his uh, disciples. So uh, after Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, he remained there with them and was baptising. John was also baptising. Uh, and then chapter 4, 
Uh, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptising more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptise but only his disciples, he left Judea. So already uh, Jesus' uh, disciples are practising baptism, uh, baptism where people will take on, in a sense, Jesus as uh, their rabbi and commit uh, to following him. Then, uh, just to remind ourselves that the word uh, baptism can have a range of senses, there are a couple of references there to uh, Jewish ritual washings, and the word bapt baptised can have a range. When we hear baptism, we just think of Christian baptism, uh, but when uh, a first century person heard the word baptism, they might think of a range of washings, or they might think of an overwhelming experience like drowning. Uh, there's a whole range of senses and uses of the word. And in a sense, that's what lies behind the next two references, uh, which again, uh, are a metaphorical use of the term baptism. When Jesus speaks of his death, as uh, has his uh, baptism. And this is uh, uh, important, uh, just to... Some people make uh, more of this for Christian baptism. But, uh, you know, John and James come and they, you know, they want glory, basically. And Jesus says, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? So it's a reference to his death. And be baptised with the baptism with which I am baptised. And they said, We are able. And Jesus says, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptised you will be baptised. He's speaking to John and James. It's a specific reference. He isn't making a generalisation about all Christians, but it is a way of describing uh, his death, being, in a sense, overwhelmed uh, in death in terms of the action commanded by God. Now, this uh, brings us, this brief summary, uh, brings us to uh, Matthew uh, 28, and I do want to just stop and pause uh, about Matthew uh, 28. And again, you might like to bring that up because, as I've said, some people have wanted to argue that Jesus' use of the term baptism here is metaphorical. Now, uh, at the very least, that is highly unlikely. And one of the reasons I say it's unlikely is that uh, those who do uh, uh, want to argue by analogy from what Jesus has just taught about his own death, speaking of that in terms of a baptism. But that happens in Mark and Luke. In Matthew's Gospel, you move straight from, in a sense, if you're looking at the use of the word baptism and baptising, you move straight from the activity of John the Baptist to Jesus commanding his disciples to baptise. So if you were a reader of Matthew's Gospel, there's nothing that would have twigged you to any of these other senses. You would have just gone from John the Baptist's activity to what Jesus says to his followers. And so he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he is now king, he's Lord. And the principal verb, the verb that has the command made explicit in it is make disciples, make disciples. Now there is... A, uh, now if I say the word participle, let's get some action here. Let's hear it for participles. 
You'd be with me with a participle? Participles are in words like doing and, you know, running and things like that. So what you have is an imperative, a command, make disciples with three participles. One precedes it and it's a participle of attendant circumstance. That is going. You are going. So, so that these two things are kind of coordinate. Going, make disciples. But then you have what are called... Now, you are allowed to ask questions, OK, uh, but they are called adverbial participles and they're probably adverbial participles of means. That is, uh, they qualify, in a sense, the main verb and tell you to some extent how the activity of the main verb is actually going to be carried out. So you're to make disciples of all nations. How, in a sense? Or what's always involved in making disciples of all nations? Baptising them in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to do all that I have commanded you. Now let's unpack that. So it says, make disciples of all nations. Now some people have said, oh, this is quite different, you see. This is, he's discipling the nations as if the nations are an entity. Uh, and, and somehow it's speaking about a lordship that kind of penetrates culture, as it were. Now that is highly unlikely. The phrase all nations occurs three other times in Matthew's Gospel and you actually have the references in the outline. Okay, uh, so, so what you actually have is an extension of Jesus' ministry. You're probably aware, Matthew 10, Matthew 15, that in Jesus' lifetime he restricted his ministry to Israel, right? to the lost sheep of Israel. That's what Matthew 10 and 15 are about. But with his exaltation now, he says that, in a sense, his ministry extends to the whole world. And all nations can also just mean all the Gentiles, everybody else now. right? Now, the, the other references uh, are in uh, Matthew 24. You'll be hated by all nations for my sake. Oh, the gospel has to be preached to all nations. And the third reference which is exactly the same phrase as Matthew 25, he gathers all the nations to him, all the, all the Gentiles, and he separates them as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Now that is plainly not talking about judging a nation. It's actually distributive. It's actually talking about everybody, right? And as Kena says, to be sure the discipling of the nations is carried out through baptising and teaching individuals in those nations. That's what it always has. It's the extension of Jesus' ministry from Israel to everybody, right? All the Gentiles, everybody, including Israel, who are actually going to stand before him, the Lord who has all authority in heaven and on earth at the last day. Now, they are to make disciples, that is, people who are committed to following him, to listening to him. That's what it is to be a disciple, to listen to him, and to do what he says. What is involved in making disciples? Well, plainly, the preaching of the gospel oh, and the outcome of the preaching of the gospel, repentance and faith. How is repentance and faith seen? It's actually seen in people being baptised in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit and people learning to do, not just being taught, but doing everything that Jesus commands. 
Now, let me say two things about that. That will start with being baptised. If, if, if they're preaching, if Jesus is commanding a baptism, it starts with being baptised. And that's what we'll see in the book of Acts. But it also always goes on to involve making disciples because making disciples is commanded. And that's ongoing, it's iterative, it just keeps going on. Now it says that they're to be baptised, that his disciples are to baptise into the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now some people say, oh, that can't be the baptism spoken of in Acts because in Acts consistently you have people baptised into the name of Jesus. There are kind of two errors involved in that. Uh, the first error is thinking that Jesus is giving a baptismal formula. And now that may be the way the early church took it up, but Jesus is actually not giving a baptismal formula. This is the climax of his revelation of himself. Now you might remember how the Gospel of Matthew starts. Okay? Christmas pageant time. What does the angel say will be Jesus' name? This is just Steve. Sorry? Emmanuel, God with us. What do you have at the climax of the gospel? One name, Father, Spirit, both God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the climax of Jesus' revelation of himself, having exercised the authority of God on earth, you know, forgiving sins, right? Calming the storm, healing, casting out. Delivering God's people, saving them as God said he would, he is now proclaimed as God. And so to be baptised in the name of is to be committed to, to be loyal to, to know yourself in a sense as belonging to, to be owned by. People are to be baptised into the name of the Father. This is the only way you can actually become, remember John's baptism, a member of the new covenant people of God. It's that decisive change and break from the past that says, good Jew that I was, good Gentile that I was, I was not good enough. Right? The only way I can be a member of the people of God is being baptised now, being committed to, being owned by, belonging to the God who's revealed himself, Father, Son, and spirit. And the second error, so not a formula, the second error is actually not recognising that to proclaim Jesus as Lord is to be Trinitarian from the beginning. So to be baptised into the name of Jesus, to confess, remember Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that is to be Trinitarian from the beginning. Because it's saying that the one who's crucified us, they say at the end of Acts 2, Right, The one who is crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ and as Lord he's been entrusted with the Spirit, the Spirit of God, which he pours out. Now who can pour out the Spirit of God but God? Right. So, so to be Lord is to be Trinitarian. So the substance is exactly the same. So they miss the purpose and the substance is exactly the same. So baptism and teaching. Now, it is not a metaphorical use of the term unless you want to think that the apostles completely misunderstood. Now, that, that is your option, uh, but let me say it is going to be the minority position through church history, as we'll see. Okay? So Jesus gives this command. He wants disciples who are committed to him as the revelation of God. Right? Father, so, so. 
the as the one in whom we come to know the true God and we can become the people of the true God through repentance and faith in him, seen in doing uh, what he teaches. Okay, as, as Kena says, uh, baptism was part of Christian practice universally and from the first, and it's unlikely that the early Jewish Christians borrowed John's practice of proselyte baptising fellow Jews without some sort of approval from Jesus. Now, that's scholarly talk. You know, when they say unlikely, they just mean it just, it, that's not going to be true, okay? So, so now, any questions on that? Now, I've got a little quote there from Carson. The New Testament can scarcely, this is in his commentary on Matthew, can scarcely conceive of a disciple who's not baptised or is not instructed. Those two things just go together. And we're talking about what the New Testament understands. We're not talking about how we apply that to our present confused circumstances yet, uh, but that's what the New Testament understands. Now, any questions so far?